This brief study on contemporary Presbyterian history is essentially an effort to pick up where Dr. Godfrey had left off with uh, his fine lectures. Uh, when we study history, we're not only learning what happened in the past, we're learning how we arrived at the present. We learn the positive and negative ways that our Presbyterian forefathers shaped the church, which in no small part means the way they shaped us. And so it helps us have a, a clearer and broader lens by which we can evaluate who we are, what we believe, why we believe what we do. So I hope to that end it's been uh, useful. And we've really been focusing on Machen because he was not only uh, important in the founding of the OPC and Westminster Seminary, uh, he's important in general in his role as a defender of Reformed and Presbyterian orthodoxy. Uh, the past couple of weeks, our attention was mostly focused on his book, Christianity and Liberalism. But this morning, we're going to kind of get back to the, the history of the Presbyterian Church and sort of look at what happened after that publication. Still going to mostly center on Machen, but sometimes it's helpful to just have a single figure to sort of anchor your history to, and he was prominent through all this history. So let's ask for the Lord's blessing, uh, and we'll get to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you again that we can come one final time this year to think about the history of our Lord Jesus Church. Help us to be reminded as we think about the church, uh, not only in our time and space, but in, in history, that it is our Lord's precious church, uh, the church he loved and gave himself for. And help us to evaluate what happened, the way men interacted uh, in their various roles as, as under-shepherds in the church uh, to, to inspire us and move us to be more faithful. Uh, so bless us, O God, this morning. Again, give us attentive and wise hearts to hear and learn. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll remember that Christianity and Liberalism was first published in 1923. By that point, Machen was definitely gaining a reputation as an apologist for Orthodox Presbyterianism. But he wasn't super well known. So in the first year of publication, the book actually sold between 400 and 800 copies. But something happened in 1923 that would significantly increase Machen's popularity, not only in the Presbyterian church, but the broader evangelical church and really even the broader culture. After Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon in 1922, Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, the battle lines were drawn. And not only did Machen publish Christianity and liberalism, but he also had started to address this issue very boldly and tirelessly in local churches because he preached at a lot of different churches. Now, the last couple of months of 1923, he was filling the pulpit uh, at, the, uh, at Princeton's First Presbyterian Church, basically from October to the very end of December. And in a series of messages that he gave at uh, First Presbyterian Church at Princeton, he highlighted the issues that divided the conservatives and the liberals. The last sermon he preached in that series was entitled, The Present Issue in the Church. And in that final sermon, Machen argued that a new reformation was needed. And then he went on to say, again, in the sermon, that one of the conditions necessary for a genuine reformation to take place was honesty. 
And he was saying in this in the context that wasn't at all obscure. He was saying the modernists are not dealing honestly with what they believe and what they communicate and specifically what they convey to the broader body. I pulled out a section of the sermon so you can get a flavor of the way uh, Machen addressed this issue. Again, it's from the present issue in the church. Machen, again, he's preaching this. The second of the general conditions favorable to any spiritual advance is honesty, just plain old-fashioned honesty of speech. That condition in certain religious circles is largely absent today. Traditional terminology is constantly being used in a double sense. Formerly, when men had brought, to, had brought to their attention perfectly plain documents like the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession or the New Testament, they either accepted them or else they denied them. Now they no longer deny them, but merely interpret them. Every generation, it is said, must interpret the Bible or the creed in its own way. And regarding the Apostles' Creed here and the bodily resurrection, I say, do do you not accept the Apostles' Creed? And the modernists would say, oh yes, of course I accept the Apostles' Creed. Do we not say it every Sunday in church? Or if we do not say it, we sing it, of course I accept the Apostles' Creed. But then do you not see the the new Mr. Conservative? Do you not see in every generation they have a right to interpret the creed in its own way? And so now, of course, we accept the proposition that the third day he rose again from the dead. But we interpret that to mean the third day he did not rise again from the dead. If everything that I say can be interpreted to mean exactly the opposite, what's the use of saying anything at all? I do not know when the great revival of religion will come, but one thing is perfectly clear. When it does come, the whole elaborate art of interpretation will be brushed aside and there will be a return as there was at the Reformation in the 16th century, the plain common sense and common honesty. By the way, this is, again, this is 100 years ago, but we still deal with that today. Do you know how many times I've had this conversation Do you believe homosexuality is a sin? Of course I believe homosexuality is a sin. Then they'll talk for three minutes, and at the end of the three minutes, you realize, well, no, they don't really believe it's a sin. That doublespeak is pervasive as a problem in the church. Now, Machen's charge is pretty simple to understand. The liberal modernists use doublespeak. They would say, of course, we hold to the Apostles' Creed and the historic documents of the church and they would interpret them to mean exactly the opposite of what they taught. You know, it reminds me in the confession on um, oaths and vows. There's a part in there that says should be interpreted in the pl- however it's worded. In other words, you know what you're saying. Don't don't play. It's almost clearly saying don't play games with the language. Well, and you know, again, Mason would totally agree with that because uh, I actually have a little book called. Uh, it's called The Transcendence of God, and it's a series of sermons that he preached through basically from about 1922 to about 1932, 33, something like that, basically uh, the founding of the OPC. And um, He often spoke about how important it was to keep your vows because they were made before God, and 
Everyone who heard those vows were intended to be God's own witnesses on earth, and he elaborates about that. But here he's even arguing more fundamental. He's saying, tell the truth. In other words, don't say you believe the Apostles' Creed if you don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's, 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 he's being so incredibly plain and simple, which, again, is what always got him in trouble. This wasn't a fine theological point. This was like, hey, you're lying. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that's what chapter twenty-two of the Westminster basically says. Yeah, it's in the plain, it's, yeah, you know, the plain sense uh, of the language, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, in other words, don't double speak. You know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so now here's an important point. I mentioned this, but you want to have this in mind. This, this was the last sermon he preached as pulpit supply for Princeton's First Presbyterian Church. Nonetheless, this was too much for. One man named uh, Dr. Henry Van Dyke. He was a very prominent member of the church and actually a prominent man of society. Henry Van Dyke was a literature professor at Princeton. He'd been U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands and the Wilson administration. I think he wrote like 60, 65 books. He actually wrote the lyrics to a hymn you're probably familiar with. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. He wrote those lyrics. So... Well, after he was a liberal, by the way, which when you read those lyrics in the future, think about what he probably meant by those words. It's fine that we sing them, but he probably meant something completely different. I remember I've sung that song many times and thought you could misinterpret this. Mm, Yeah. And so anyway. After Machen's final uh, sermon he, uh, there, he's like, I'm done. This is just too much. So he sent a letter to the section of the church. And I want you to listen to the anger and, and intensity of his language. Again, it's printed there in your handout. He writes, Having had another Sabbath spoiled by the bitter, schismatic, and unscriptural preaching of the stated supply of the First Presbyterian Church, directly contrary to the spirit of his beautiful text, I desire to give up my pew in the church. The few Sabbaths that I am free from evangelical work to spend with my family are too precious to be wasted in listening to such a dismal, bilious travesty of the gospel. We want to hear about Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Not about fundamentalists and modernists, the only subject on which your stated supply seems to have anything to say. And what he says is untrue and malicious. Until he's done, count me out. And give up my pew in the church. We want to worship Christ our Savior. And here's the thing. Not only did Van Dyke send this letter to the session, he issued it in a press release. And it was picked up by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, and it was a front-page story on the Philadelphia Public Ledger. Right? And we're the ones that hate. The conservatives are the ones that are full of hate. Here's the thing that's interesting, though. This immediately did something he didn't anticipate. It catapulted Machen into the national limelight in a way that he did, wasn't otherwise. I noticed the uh, that this was from Stonehouse's, Dead Stonehouse's book. Was he critical? Of, I know you had said he'd been critical of him at times. Was he critical of this sermon? Oh, was Stonehouse critical of this? Well, you had said that in the past that Stonehouse was somewhat critical. I thought you was Stonehouse somewhat critical of Machen and his way he went about things? No, if I did, I misspoke. There are a number... 
there are a number of guys who are or were OPC elders, John Frame, George Marsden, Gregory, David Knoll. Marsden. Okay, so I just wanted to know Stonehouse's take on this sermon. Stonehouse, I mean, in the best possible way, I think he revered Major. Yeah. Well, he was one of the first professors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he adored him, you know, so... So, so he wouldn't have. Uh, he would, and if I did say that, I just misspoke. So, no, he didn't. But much higher chance I. Well, so Machen's now popular. Prior to this, he had you know editorials published in some major publications, uh, but he was mostly known in Presbyterian circles. Uh, but now the publicity of this event sort of blew up his public profile. If I can say it this way, Machen went viral, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and after a sluggish start of sales. The next year, instead of four to eight hundred sales, uh, four to eight hundred book sales, it went up to between four and six thousand. Then it increased after that. Was, was Van Dyke popular in the secular society? He was popular in the secular society and very popular in the liberal movement of the Presbyterian Church. He preached often. He had been a pastor for I think ten or twelve years. So, yeah, so. Anyway, so it's interesting. Whatever Van Dyke intended in his attacks, it probably wasn't to make him more popular and to give him a broader audience, but that's one of the, the goods that God mm-hmm. accomplished through this rather horrific act. I want to pause here for just a moment because it helps us understand um, the way liberals think, the way they argue, the way they deal with the faithful in the church. And, and we have to know this. We have to understand that not everybody, just because they're in the church, is dealing honestly. And, and it's a hard thing to, to wrap your mind around because, you know, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 13, right, that one of the things love does, it hopes all things. And so, you know, we want to trust our brothers and sisters, and we want to trust them magnanimously. But we have to understand, and this is the, this is the bitter part, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they don't deserve trust and hope. They deserve to be driven from the flock. So, as, and as I say, I think, think about this. One of the reasons I mentioned that this was the last sermon that Machen preached there is that that's when Van Dyke acted. And Van Dyke was well connected to that church and to those sessions. He would have known that was the last one. So you have to wonder if the whole complaint was more personal and political and it was a real concern for misusing, uh, for Machen misusing his time behind the pulpit. Second, Machen's accusation in that final sermon is that liberals use Christian terms, but under the rubric of interpretation would make those terms say whatever suited their agenda. And that almost certainly pinched Van Dyke because he was a leader of the liberal movement. Make some connections here. Several lessons back, we learned about a guy named Charles Briggs. Do you remember? He was instrumental in bringing higher criticism into the church right at the end of the 19th century, moving into uh, the 20th century. And Charles Briggs was one who strongly advocated to change the confessions and make them less Calvinistic, to basically make the Westminster Confessions Arminian. Well, Van Dyke had been a dear friend and an avid supporter of Charles Briggs. And he especially aligned with Briggs in the desire to change the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was one fighting that battle with him. 
Now, you may remember, again, previous lesson, we learned there were a couple men in the New York Presbytery who refused to affirm the virgin birth. Dr. Van Dyke was one of their most ardent supporters to say, ordain them anyway. And let me mention uh, one other thing that connects to a previous lesson. You recall that three times the church sort of scrambled to say there are five fundamentals that, that men must affirm if they hope to be ordained. But then in 1924, some 1,300 ministers signed on to the Auburn Affirmation to say, those five fundamentals, they're too restrictive of, of Christian liberty. We can't possibly do that. One of the most prominent, prominent signers of the Auburn Affirmation and best-known men on that list was Dr. Van Dyke. When you say 1,300, you mean 1,300 in the Presbyterian Church? Yes, yes. And again, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. If I'm not mistaken, there were something like, I think, seven, 8,000 ministers. So it was a large denomination. But that's still a considerable number. Oh. Again, that's how liberals argue. If you look at Van Dyke's complaint to the session of the church, it sounds like a guy who simply wanted the sweet old gospel proclaimed. And he was frustrated that Machen was bringing the controversy to the pulpit. But truth be told, he demonstrates exactly what Machen was objecting to. Do you know what Machen's text was that Sunday? Yes, Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, all things have become new, yeah. Because he's making the case that he wasn't following the text, that's why. And you know what? In fairness, Machen did veer much further from the text than I would. So my problem is Van Dyke's criticism isn't legitimate. He's not an honest, he's not an honest interlocker with, with the issue. No. Van Dyke was a social gospel guy, totally a social gospel guy. He wasn't really concerned with things like the doctrine of the Trinity or inerrancy or substitutionary atonement. So his language, his language in that article to the various media sources and to the elders of First Pres at Princeton was likely a ploy to gain support from the faithful who weren't that engaged in some of these issues. So it was just a way of saying, I'm using orthodox language, right? Machen must be a big old meanie if he's, it was a ploy. See, I'm not all that convinced that the way Van Dyke used the titles of Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, mm -hmm. that he even had the meaning that you and I would ascribe to them. Yeah, and that's why Machen was calling for plain, old-fashioned honesty of speech. Just say what you believe. And that's not how the modernists spoke of Christianity. They, they were masters of doublespeak. Yeah, and so this tells us something about the way liberals make argument arguments. But it also tells us something as we move forward and we think about Machen and, and the conservatives who were still in the Presbyterian church. There's now a giant bullseye painted on Machen's back. It's there for everyone to see and it becomes clear he is the man where the modernists need to focus their guns. So Machen eventually stopped filling the pulpit at Princeton, uh, Princeton's First Presbyterian Church, and he was replaced by a man named Dr. Charles Erdman. Now, Erdman had been a pastor in a prominent church outside of Philadelphia 
for about 15 years. And in 1906, he was brought onto the faculty of Princeton Seminary as a professor of practical theology. And incidentally, that's the same year you may remember when Machen began teaching at the seminary. But with Erdman now filling, filling the pulpit, Dr. Van Dyke returned to the church and, of course, made it another major press event. Now, it would seem that Erdman was more theologically conservative than Van Dyke. In fact, Erdman was one of the early advocates for the five fundamentals. That's really the problem. Um, that, 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 <laughs> that, that, that's the appeal of a guy like Erdman. He wasn't... He wasn't interested in any sense in preserving confessional Presbyterian, just the blandest, milquetoast evangelicalism that he could come up with. Just, just these, these five. And so Van Dyke didn't, didn't, didn't mind that at all. And we're going to see in the next decade they end up becoming co-belligerents against Machen. So, well, Erdman had several strong allies to include uh, the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, Dr. J.R. Stevenson. And again, they both had broad evangelical sensibilities, but believed the mission of the church uh, uh, would, would just be too compromised if anything like a church split happened. And that's what they foresaw with this push from the confessional guys, the conservative guys. If you keep... Beating this drum, the church is going to separate. Uh, now, interestingly enough, guys like Erdman and even Stevenson, Machen wouldn't call them modernists. He wouldn't call them liberals. He identified them as indifferentists. Indifferentists, which was another way of saying they were moderates. Not moderates, moderates. Moderates are definitely not moderate. Yeah. And what's significant about this point in history, where you are, now you're moving into about 1924, 1925, is up till this point, Machen's been at battle with the modernists. And now he's going to pick up a new enemy, the moderates. Again. When did Stevenson take over at Princeton, and who did he follow? Uh, He followed... uh, I can't think of the guy's first name, but his last name was Patton. And he was a wonderful guy. Again, Patton. Yeah, and he, again, Machen adored, everybody adored Patton. He was, a, he was just a rock and a solid, solid guy. Keep the timeline in my mind. And I think Stevenson, I'm pretty sure it was 1912 when he took over. Not, not 100%, but pretty sure. So Patton replaced um, B.B. Warfield, correct? No. Not really. B.B. Warfield wasn't officially the president. Oh, I didn't know that. He, 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 forget his title. Okay. He, was, he was like, yeah, top dog without being called top dog. Okay. I didn't realize so, that. Okay. But he wasn't an officially the president. So Patton was, though. So. Did Patton follow Hodge? Actually, yes. Pa- Patton followed A.A. A. Hodge. Yeah. Okay, I'll show that. So it was, yeah, it was basically Charles Hodge. Make sure I get this right. B.B. Warfield, A.A. A. Hodge, Patton. But B.B. wasn't president, was it? It wasn't really a president, per se. You know, so. But, again, the interesting thing about Stevenson is he was not a graduate from Princeton. 
which was a little bit odd. He was a graduate of McCormick Seminary, and uh, they they brought him in, and this was the first time they had a a president that wasn't substantially um, grounded in the confessions. He he was much more of uh, conservative, evangelical. That was his vibe. Let's again remember one of the things that's undergirding this period of history that really sort of plagued the Presbyterian Church from the beginning, and especially like after the Civil War and then after World War One. Union. We got to get people together. We we've got to we've got to be a strong church to 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 serve America's interests well. So, in many ways, it's surprising how the liberals were a type of Christian nationalists, and, and that that can. That can go off the rails. Again, I, I'm not opposed to that term per se, but that's the reality, you know. So, anyway, so Machen, um, he spoke pretty, pretty sharply against the uh, moderates in Christianity and liberalism. He argues that moderates can never actually advance the cause of the gospel because moderates never produce men like Luther who say, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, Amen. And, and then Machen writes this incredibly profound truth. Indifferentism about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. Mm-hmm. Right? I've said this a number of times over the years. You've probably heard me say something like this. This is why I stole it. Mm-hmm. No, really. I mean, this really impacted me the first time I read it because that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. No moderate ever stood up and say, No. They've never said, here I stand on God's word, I'll do it. No moderate has ever said that. They always say, okay, whatever you say. And they always say that to the liberals. <laughs> never to the guys who are faithful. Now, to quote Rush Limbaugh, he had used to have a thing that said, they never erected a statue to a moderate. Yeah. Simple, same thing, basically. So, so it's... it's Again, this is just a truth we need to know. And I, I, I don't know that I would have been this candid even ten years ago. But it's always the moderates who end up granting the victory to the liberals. Uh, one compromise at a time. That's how they do it. So, and that's exactly what's going to happen to the mainline Presbyterians. In 1925, the General Assembly elected Charles Erdman to be the moderator. Now, if you're not familiar with Presbyterianism, a moderator... He's the guy who basically administers the meeting at the General Assembly. He's the guy with the gavel. And they end up wielding quite a lot of authority. They essentially control the parameters of any debates. And if a commission is formed uh, to, to specifically deliberate some issue, the moderator gets to decide who's on that commission. Right? So you can see what an important place that is. I mean, like we have a General Assembly coming up. And there's already wrangling going on. Who, who's going to be the moderator? Who are we going to put forth? Right? And, and it'll, be, it'll be voted on. But that, that ends up becoming an important issue. It's not just a, it's not just a, a, a title of honor. They really do have the ability to, to shift directions one way or another. Well, at the 1925 General Assembly, many of the men of the Assembly were convinced that the Presbyterian excuse me, that the Presbytery of New York had drifted far afield from orthodoxy. Remember, they had a couple of things going on in New York. They, they had allowed the liberal Baptist, Harry Fosdick, to, to fill uh, the pulpit. And, and, again, it wasn't even so much that he was a Baptist as it was he was a complete liberal 
um, Baptist, and that's the Presbytery that uh, put forth actually a number of men over the span of about 10 years, but two men in 1923 who would not affirm the virgin birth. By the way, there's the slippery language they use. So are you saying you deny the virgin birth? No, 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 we just can't affirm it. Really, that's what they did. Again, slippery, they're snakes. So, um, so the, the, the General Assembly was ready to um, rule on this and, and rule that the Presbytery had been out of line. And let me just say something. This is a historical truism. Throughout the history of the Presbyterian Church, from its early inception up till today, almost all the liberal movements originate in New York, New York City. And, and often it's Philadelphia that's charged to pull them back. No. It's always, I don't know why that's the case. It's probably a little more than the fact that it's urban because Philadelphia was historically the place that was pulling back, and that's a big city. But you have to think there was something about the leanings of the people in New York that just kept drawing the church further and further afield. So the General Assembly, they were ready to uh, uh, issue a censure on the Presbytery of New York. And as things started to intensify, the New York Presbytery had sent a man to defend them, uh, a man named Henry Sloan Coffin. Uh, Coffin had been a pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. So that's pretty much hardcore New York City, right? And he's defending uh, the right of um, the New York Presbytery to, to ordain these men. And so really, you could just, apparently the room was just getting hot and intense and so Charles Erdman, the moderator of the General Assembly, calls a break, and he had a two-hour private meeting with Coffin. Now, let me tell you, that is the most unpresbyterian thing you can do. You know, when we have a session meeting at our house, if you said to me, Pastor Bird, can I come? The answer is yes. And that's not my opinion. That's what the Book of Church Orders says. Now, if you come and we have to deal with a personal congregational matter, we'll call an executive session, and you have to leave. But, but that's a basic of Presbyterianism. You're doing, you're a church court, but you're doing the work of the church. The church has every right to know what you're doing. Private meetings are a big no-no for anybody who's actually following Presbyterian polity. But they go into this closed-door meeting for a couple hours, and Coffin assured Erdman that if the New York Presbytery was censured, then they, along with some others who sympathize with the New York Presbytery, they just walk out of the General Assembly. They should have let them go. <clears throat> well, that's not what he did. When the Assembly reconvened, Erdman allowed Coffin to read a statement, essentially chastising the man who wanted to discipline the New York Presbytery. And then, here's, here was this snake move, <laughs> before any action could be taken, Erdman stepped in and he exercised his right as a moderator and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to form a commission. Because he was actually causing all the unrest and turmoil in Christ church. Again, let me tell you something else about Presbyterian polity. If a commission is called at the General Assembly, sometimes, sometimes, this is a minority though, sometimes it's for a valuable purpose. More often than not, it's because 
We want to compromise with the liberal or we want to kick the can down the road. We don't want to deal with it here, so let's just put this off. And hopefully next year, by the time they come back and give their report, everybody will be cooler heads will prevail. So, yeah, and I, I don't find that a really helpful tool in Presbyterianism, but it is a legitimate tool. So that's, that's what, uh, excuse me, what Erdman does. It's kind of a parliamentary trick, but he says, let's just, let's just create a, a committee to see who's causing the problem. So Erdman assigned 15 uh, men to serve on the commission, and they were to prepare a report uh, to be presented at the 1926 assembly. Uh, the, the commission was called the Swearingen Commission. During that year, the committee met four times. Excuse me. And it heard from a bunch of different men and groups to include Machen. And remember, they were charged with discovering the source of unrest in the church. So Machen submitted a paper explaining where he saw the unrest. It's in the widespread and in many quarters dominant position in the ministry of the church as well as among its lay members of a type of thought and experience commonly called modernism, which is diametrically opposed to the constitution of our church and to the Christian religion. So... Again, Machen, straightforward. When the assembly uh, heard the report in 1926, turns out it wasn't the modernists causing the problem. It was the conservatives. It was Machen. So they said, so they sort of laid out two core issues. One is that the Presbyterian system admits a diversity of view where the core truth is identical. Another is that the church has flourished best and showed most clearly the good hand of God upon it when it laid aside its tendencies to stress these differences and put the emphasis on a spirit of unity. (laughs) And so what was said after that is that all the hasty and harsh judgments, all the slander, all the misrepresentations, all those things came from the conservative side and it's got to cease and desist. Again, (laughs) I I said this about 200 times. In this little series, nothing new under the sun, right? So, well, the 1926 received and approved the commission's work. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a second if I have time. Um, Now, I'm just going to give you an abbreviated version of this. During that year, 1926, Machen was uh, offered a promotion to take the seat of apologetics at Princeton seminary, and he deserved it. He was well worth it. Um, but during that year, as they were deliberating, because this had to be, a, his promotion had to be approved by the General Assembly, because it was a denominational seminary. Um, people wrote in and said, you know, no, 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 no. We, we don't want him. And they, they basically cited two reasons. In the ver- and There were a couple of reports that were major uh, that really indicated why they didn't want Majin. One was he didn't support prohibition. And because um, um, an apologetics professor also taught ethics, the argument was we don't want anybody who doesn't support um, prohibition teaching our young men uh, for the ministry. That would, he's, just, he's not suitable ethically. The second report that came argued that Machen's personal disposition was such that he shouldn't be elevated in the denomination. And here's how Machen was described. He's temperamentally defective, bitter, and harsh in his judgments of others, and implacable to those who did not agree with him. Now, guess who wrote that? 
Charles Erdman and the president, Dr. J.R. Stevenson, right? The moderates, because <laughs> Machen wasn't playing nice. Well, with these two reports, Machen wasn't given his promotion. So back to the 1926 commission. They basically came in and they said, okay, you got to stop being mean, you conservative confessional guys, and we think we've identified what the real problem is. It's, it's, it's Princeton. That's the problem. There's something in the water there that's making cantankerous men. Because really, apart from Erdman and Stevenson, the president, almost all the other professors were firmly in Machen's camp. Right? Almost all of them. No, the vast majority, probably 75% of them, were in Machen's camp. So... But what they decided when this, when this committee came back to do their report is, you know what, let's, let's make another committee to go in and sort of I spy the problems in Princeton. So they created a, a committee of five, and Erdman sent them into his own seminary to sort of muck around and find out the problem. And the long and short of it is, uh, by the 1928 General Assembly, it was decided by this committee that went from five and then was expanded to 11, that, 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 that the only way we can have peace in the Presbyterian Church is if we completely restructure Princeton Seminary. And so that was the plan. Here's the thing that's very interesting. They, they sent around a petition, and they had 11,000 signatures of, of men and women in the Presbyterian Church. I think 3,000 of them were ministers, but 11,000 in total. Uh, saying, hey, we don't want you to restructure our seminary. Now, think about that. There were 1,300 on the Auburn Affirmation. This was like 11,000. That should have been enough for the General Assembly to say, hey, this is the will of the body. We ought to at least think it through, right? But they didn't. They decided they were going to restructure, and uh, that's exactly what they did. Erdman, interestingly enough, sent out a letter saying, Oh, look, I, I promised in this restructuring we're not going to change any of the doctrinal teachings of Princeton Seminary, uh, not going to be any influences working to that end of, of doctrinal compromise. And one has to wonder if he even believed that when he sent out the letter. I, I don't know. But the handwriting was on the wall. The restructuring, the way it worked, there were a variety of boards at Princeton set up as checks and balances. And the way they had it set up is these boards were checks and balances, and the president was a check and balance, right? So it was, it was very functional in, in that way to keep things from spiraling out of control, understanding the nature of man's heart. But when they restructured, they said, we need one board. And naturally, most of the people Erdman put on the board were signers of the Auburn Affirmation, and we need to give the president more power. Right? Because that's, that's always the solution. Give a sinner more power. That's just what we need. So, so that's what happened. It was organized in, uh, reorganized in 1929. About a month later, Machen resigned, resigned, ending his 22 years of service, service at a seminary he fought for. And he wasn't the only one. Dick Wilson, Oswald Alice, Cornelius Van Til all resigned. There were a couple guys who didn't. John Murray would stay there for, um, a couple more, well, he would come a little later, and then he would stay a little while longer. Gerhardus Voss didn't leave, uh, largely because he was planning to retire in about 10 months, and he did retire in 10 months, and I believe he went to the Bahamas to live. So 
or somewhere in the Caribbean. But so anyway, but some godly guys went with him. Uh, Machen had been encouraged uh, that he should think about founding a new seminary, and he was really struggling with that. wasn't all that sold on the idea. Throughout that the summer months, that hesitation uh, really dissipated, and on September 25th, 1929, Westminster Seminary was founded and began with a class of 52 students. I provided an early picture of the seminary, and uh, again, John Murray's in that picture. He, he didn't come when they founded the seminary. He came a year later, but there were some real power, powerhouses at that time, and the seminary became a fortress against... Uh, Compromise. Uh, any questions? Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to Todd will be pleased because there's a different picture. I know. I, I'm going to send it to him just for that. So um, I'm going to just touch real quickly one other thing. Machen founded a new seminary, but he was still in the Presbyterian Church. Right? He was still in this denomination. And so his troubles weren't over. Uh, the next battlefield he found himself on had to do with foreign uh, missions. Uh, I believe it was 1930, 29 or 30, uh, the mainline denomination published a book, uh, sort of a manifesto, entitled Rethinking Missions. And one of the things it argued for is that Christianity wasn't at all opposed to other world religions. Uh, the church could stand arm in arm with Hindus, Buddhists, Muhammads to fight naturalism and immorality. And Rethinking Missions had the support of liberals. It had the support of people like John D. Rockefeller. And it had another supporter, a woman by the name of Pearl Buck. Anybody familiar with that name? She was a famous novelist, wrote a, a famous book called The Good Earth, won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, a world-renowned novelist. She was on the Foreign Missions Board. And... Uh, she had grown up as a missionary kid in China, and she's like, no, we've got to totally revamp missions. So here's how she wrote about uh, some of the changes that she liked in this idea of rethinking missions. Let the sole question about the missionary be whether or not he's beloved in the community, whether the people see any, see any use in his being among them, whether or not the way he's lived there has conveyed anything to the people about Christ, not mind you, whether or not he's preached, for that's of no value. But whether by the way he's lived, he's conveyed anything. If he's not, then let him be returned to his own country. But above all, let the spread of the Spirit of Christ be rather by mode of life than preaching. I'm weary unto death with his incessant preaching. It deadens all thought. It confuses all issues. It's a proud, excuse me. It is producing in our Chinese church a horde of hypocrites and in our theological seminaries a body of Chinese ministers which make one despair for the future, and she went on to write, you know, if Jesus didn't actually exist, it wouldn't be a big deal. It, you know, just the myth of Jesus in the Bible, if it's just a myth, it's, it's valuable enough to, to go on with. So, Court Machen's not going to brook any of that, right? So he pushes back, pushes back. Eventually, he forms an independent mission board, right? One that will actually proclaim the gospel. And so charges were brought against him, and... Basically, he had violated the constitution of the church, and, and obviously he's siphoning money off their mission program. And the long and short of it is that they ended up defrocking him, uh, I believe, in, yeah, in 1936. And at that point, the modernists got what they want. He was out of their denomination. 
Well, on June 11, 1936, he was one of the founding members of the Presbyterian Church of America. It consisted of 34 ministers, 17 ruling elders, 79 laymen. It's interesting. They were the initial PCA, for real. But the PCA USA sued the Young Church, saying that their name sounded too much like their own, so they had to change it to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so Machen, Machen wrote on that day, On Thursday, June 11, 1936, the hopes of many long years were realized. We became members at last of a true Presbyterian church. We recovered at last the blessings of true Christian fellowship. What a joyous moment it was. How long the years of struggle seemed to sink into nothingness compared with the peace and joy that filled our hearts. And Machen would spend the rest of his life helping lay a solid foundation for that, for that denomination, the OPC. What Machen didn't know is that the rest of his life would only be seven months. Seven months. He went to Bismarck, North Dakota, to help a church deal with some struggles, came down with pneumonia while he was there preaching. And on January 1, 1937, he sent a final telegram to his dear friend and colleague, John Murray. The message was short and sweet, gospel, gospel sweet. Machen said to his friend, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Later that day, at the age of 55, his soul was translated from the side of glory to the other. Sorry, I was trying to get through that as quick as I could. Didn't really leave a lot of opportunity for questions, but you can ask questions during the uh, fellowship meal if you have them. And I'd love, I'd love to talk about this. So, but thought I would try to get through it as much as I could at least. Well, thank you for your patience and coming because we have gone beyond Thanks Memorial for Day. Your your words. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, this last word we heard from H and truly blesses our hearts in the deepest place. Uh, we are men and women who have hope because Christ lived for us. He kept your law perfectly for us. When you see us hidden in Christ, it's as though we're law keepers. The marvel of the gospel is you treated your only begotten Son, the holy and high Son of heaven, as a lawbreaker in our praise. Now, because he took our law, our law breaking and paid the price for our sins. And because we have His righteousness, His active obedience, wrapped around our shoulders like a glorious mantle, we know one day we'll stand in Your presence and we'll hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Bless us now as we gather to worship You in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.